Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talks about the technology behind this week's uh, energy news. I'm editor Peter White. We've got with us our solar analyst, Andrew Svontanar. Hello there. Yeah, we actually have him this time. Hydrogen and Adriation analyst, Bogdan Avramuta. Hello. And avian analyst, Connor Watts. Hello. And finally, our production manager, product manager, Simon Thompson. Good morning, Peter. Okay, on today's podcasts, um, it's, it's a bit of a ragbag of uh, subjects. We're going to talk about, first, the Brazilian election, where, as uh, we hoped, or sort of predicted, um, uh, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva pushed Bolsonaro out of the president's office. And we'll think, talk about what that means for renewables. We're going to talk about uh, yet another multi-billion dollar hydrogen project which has emerged in Asia. And we can uh, look at how surprising it is that China is now pitching to build 100 gigawatts of energy storage by 2025. And we'll also see what our product manager, Simon, made of this week's issues. But the first story is going over to Connor and uh, to hear what um, he wrote about the Brazilian election. Yes, so the Brazilian election votes were counted in on October the 31st, which resulted in Lula edging out Bolsonaro by 1.8% of the vote share. Very, very close. And I was watching it live during the F1. And at one point, Bolsonaro was ahead, and I was quite scared <laughs> because that would have been very, very bad. Uh, Bolsonaro's track record on the Amazon and Science in general, I think, after COVID is pretty well cemented to be regressive, and that's putting it rather nicely. Whereas Lula's first go at presidency really was a good thing for Brazil as a whole from the kind of early to late 2000, I believe 2003 to 2010. So, and what we've seen in Brazil at the moment is um, we've seen uh, uh, this idea. I always get mixed up politically with uh, Mexico, but we've basically seen um, a kind of, uh, there's a drought, um, it's reliant on hydropower uh, to get rid of the drought, to, to, the lack of electricity that's led to uh, means they've been buying energy in from outside and it's all fossil fuels. Is that, that's, that's about, sums it up? Yeah, that's on the very, uh, yes, that's on the more recent end of things as well. But the reliance on hydropower and that sort of thing was originally, well, that was a while ago, and that was partially under Lula's uh, kind of... Management. It was under his time, yes. But at the same time, it's renewables. So what's he been saying in the run-up to the election? What's he been saying he's going to do? He has mostly been focusing on social reforms. So in his first go at presidency, he very much... He was reducing inequality and he was aiming to bring up kind of the rather well, the incredibly poor conditions of the average Brazilian to be more in line with other Latin American and other kind of almost kind of to the level of your of yeah. European countries. And so he's gonna be looking at major tax reforms, which are doing that again because they've worsened under Bolsonaro and and other presidents who've had their ways with that sort of thing. He is going to struggle, though, because while he may have won the popular vote and is going to be 
president of the upper house, he's going to struggle a bit because he doesn't have the votes in the lower house and effectively the parliamentary seats to command an easy majority. That just means legislation is going to be easy to pass. Do we know enough about uh, Brazilian uh, presidential power to know whether he can do stuff at the stroke of a pen in the way that the American president can? It'll be very interesting. I, I think we'll, this is how we're going to find out just how limited or not limited he is, because I think he's, he's actually limited at three levels by the remaining political opposition, because not only did they retain the lower house, um, if you look at a, a map uh, on the uh, of vote share in parts of the country, the southern half of the Amazon is still pro-Bolsonaro, one of the most pro-Bolsonaro areas. And, and this election also covered governorships. So I think you might have some state-level resistance. I'm sure it's not as... Uh, I'm sure the states don't have quite as many rights as they do in the USA. Um, and another thing is that this is a corrupt place where different institutions in society or even on a per-state basis will have almost kind of naked um, political affiliations. And you can see that with Lula's own past um, conviction, which was found to have been a, a biased judge. And and then he was sort of liberated or uh, from prison. Yeah, he was accused of... He was accused of um of bribery and corruption himself and convicted, but it turns out it was a biased judge. Well, yeah, you could say it turned out, but you could also sort of say, well, do we necessarily even trust that side? Because the um, <laughs> he was found innocent on, on the basis of, oh, the, the court didn't have the, um, it didn't have um, the right to didn't follow concern itself. Process. Yeah, it didn't probably, you know, that's not quite the same as he was, I mean, it is the same as being innocent as far as the actual legal outcome. But it's, it's still a, a bit iffy. Let's, let's, let's come back to renewables. Yeah, yeah where, where do we want to see the country go? Let's say that first. We want to see uh, fires no longer burning in the Amazon. That's offshore wind. We want to it's see offshore wind. Wide like they have okay. massive capacity for it, and it has a minimal onshore footprint as, you know, offshore. So and where is Brazil with all? Brazil's an oil exporter? It is. It is. I just asked the question. It was rhetorical. It's <laughs> an opportunity to let you talk, but uh, uh, never mind. Yeah, no, it's certainly an oil exporter, but it's not particularly, um, you know, uh, a, um, exporting. It's not a particularly major one, is it? 497 million barrels in, in 2021. Nah, that's so. not much. <laughs> it's not much. I mean, okay, Brazil has some of the best uh, coastal wind in the world, right? Up in the north east, which happens to be it has the most capacity, and I can yeah. also say, um, as the solar writer, it's one of the most rapidly growing uh, markets for solar, and that was under Bolsonaro. So presumably, it'll be even more favourable in terms of policy now. Yes, but where is that solar capacity going to be coming from? From a land perspective, is it going to be coming from like the swathes of the Amazon that are being cut down under Bolsonaro, or are they if being, I, if or I is it more like residential? A lot of it has been commercial and industrial, so a type of rooftop. I think most of it's been distributed. Um, I mean, even distributed can actually be causing deforestation if it's on a uh, on a on the rooftop of an ag agricultural installation that's just yeah. been built. Um, but yeah, it doesn't. I mean, maybe that's the interesting thing. Um, the, the 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 new change from Lula is not so much that it'll grow even faster, but that it'll be restricted a bit from clearing forest for it because Brazil does do. Uh, large projects, although it's mostly distributed for so. 
And the money almost certainly will come from sale of oil, uh, and China is its biggest customer for oil. So it's still going to carry on producing oil. It's going to sell it to China. Uh, it'll use that money perhaps to build some wind turbines. That's what we'd like to see. That's the kind of direction. And we uh, and the, the fires in the Amazon will be put out. Well, that's what we're hoping to see from this um, from uh, this presidential um, time of office. But, you know, as we pointed out, it might not be that simple. Um, and maybe they have midterms where you can fix the lower houses. I don't know. One other point on cost, quickly. Yeah. One of one of Lula's other policies was that he would remove the cap on infrastructure spending, which is currently set to be linked with inflation to prevent corruption and because of infrastructure being of infrastructure spending being a an easy outlet for state corruption to manifest. Yeah. One of his policies was to remove that spend so that he would then be able to pass more more infrastructure spending to be able to oh, so cl classic infrastructure after. spend is is people in the country get jobs. Poor people, when they're mm -hmm. given money yeah, exactly. through jobs, spend it. The economy, uh, um, it's a, a bottom-up approach to fixing the economy. And most economists would agree that that's the right way to go about things. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so, Bogdan, uh, well, we, 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 we hope, we wish Brazil well, but I'm sure it's an unraveling story, unro unrolling story. Um, Another um, another uh, $2 billion hydrogen project uh, coming out of uh, Asia. Yes, um, last week, only last week, we talked about Singapore and Oman coming out publicly with um, plans uh, about using hydrogen as a major energy source within their energy mixes. Um, and now we have uh, Jackson Green, which is a uh, infrastructure Jackson and Group. renewables. Oh. Yes, oh, yeah, Jackson Green. Yeah, Jackson okay. Green is a subdivision of the Jackson Group. So yeah, you are technically right. Okay. Um, they're going to make a $2.8 billion investment in a uh, northwestern state of India. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce that for a uh, major uh, renewables and uh, hydrogen production plant um, by 2028. It's going to develop in phases by 2028. And it's aimed to uh, produce about 360,000 tons of green hydrogen per year. Now, the choice of location was interesting because it's not random. This northwestern state in India has the uh, highest solar radiance of the country and is also rich in wind resources and currently houses the, the largest solar wind farm. So if you literally go to Google and put Thar Desert, into into Google and in press images, you certainly get a picture of a desert. You get pictures of camels around an oasis and sand as far as the eye can see. So this is a good place to put a, a solar farm, but it's it's not that far from uh, highly concentrated parts of population. Um, so transmission. No, I mean New Delhi is uh, is very close to the state. Yeah, is this money coming from? Um, is, is this money supplied by Jackson Green or is they? Or, or is it um, a statement that says, we want to build something that big, we'll put in some money, unspecified amount, can the government help, can everyone else help? Uh, no, all the money comes from Jackson Green. Okay, okay. Well, so so they, they genuinely believe that um, there's going to be, presumably, an export market 
um, to make them rich uh, in hydrogen? Yes, potentially. Um, but yeah, other than that, on the on the topic of uh, the trend emerging, uh, we also have Kazakhstan. Now we covered this story a year ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, when it first came out, I think when it came out, it was just a uh, an MOU or a letter of intent, something like that. And now uh, more details have been ironed out. So um, Kazakhstan is uh, is building a well, actually. Um, Svevind Energy, I think it's a German company, if I butchered that name. I yeah, uh, um, Svevind is both German and Swedish, uh, but um, yeah, yeah. So, and it's privately owned, so it's got, I don't know, headquarters seems to be in Germany. Yeah, Yeah. so basically they have a deal with the, um, the Minister of Kazakhstan, or they signed a deal with the Prime Minister of Kazakhstan um, for a very large um, renewables facility, 20 gigawatts uh, that will power 20 gigawatts of uh, electrolyzer capacity that will produce 2 million tons of green hydrogen per year. Uh, and that's due to be completed in 2032. And the estimated cost of that will be between 40 and 50 billion US dollars. Wow. Uh. Um, just just um, how stable politically is Kazakhstan? Well, Kazakhstan had the coup attempt in January that the Russians had to come in and suppress, didn't they? So it's so, probably so, quite stable now. So, so it's quite stable, as in the, the coups the generally are suppressed rather than successful, and there's always Russians to invade as well. Well, well, actually, well, actually, it was kind of actually it was a ah, what was it again? I think the old ruler Nazarbayev tried to seize power back from the new guy, his protege Takayev, and Takayev sort of retained his new power with the Russian support. But he's, he feels secure enough, even though the Russians um, suppressed that revolt, to, um, to take certain actions which are anti-Russian, like they're going to move their language over from the Cyrillic alphabet to the Latin alphabet, or at least they haven't cancelled that project, which has been in the works for a while. Um, so I, th- I actually think, despite the fact that it had this coup attempt, I think it's actually fairly uh, stable. I guess it, I, I haven't really sold you on that, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's supposedly it's a presidential republic, so you, you know you get voted into power. Um, you know, I, I wonder if that's uh, that's really true. I mean, uh, if it I mean Uzbekistan is also is also able to attract large renewable investments, so okay. there's concerns here, but not too many to suppress investment. No, I was just thinking, you know, if it's really tempting, um, uh, then perhaps the neighbour will want to invade to borrow the forty. Uh, gigawatts of uh, of, of um, energy that's making hydrogen. But uh, anyway, it, it's 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 yeah, a supposedly stable um, uh, Eastern European or Asian government, which will export uh, most of its hydrogen. I would imagine to the West. Has anyone said what what um, this hydrogen project was, is going to be doing? Um, it's it's both for domestic consumption and exports, but no specific export targets were mentioned. I mean, this could go through. Probably the the most obvious thing is over the Caspian, maybe into Azerbaijan and Turkey, but maybe they could also be looking towards India and Iran. Uh, it is kind of strange that it's it's natural. Actually, another place it could export to is actually China. That's true. Yeah, they have some pipelines through there, don't they? So, so it's kind of weird to think of it 
you know, it's it's about as far as you can get from the sea. It's right in the middle of Eurasia. But they, surprisingly, when you think about it, they do actually have some options here. And um, you have some water to uh, to electrolyze. I don't think you need that much. Yeah, quite. there's a there's a uh, there's a there's a sea um, close location, I think. Well, the Aral Sea. Hopefully, it's not the Aral Sea because that's had a hard enough time already. But I mean, I was surprised when there were hydrogen electrolysis projects in China's Xinjiang province. But no, they've just got like a canal from I think it, I can't remember the name of the river, some Russian river, and they're just able to secure the water that way. So um, it's not really that bad compared to the water demand of how tens of millions of people live there. Okay, it, it really is consistent among all these countries: Kazakhstan. Um, Xinjiang within China, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan. Um, I mean, I mean, we we could probably list something approaching two hundred billion dollars, which is chasing new hydrogen uh, uh, creation, and um, and most of it hasn't been spent, and the spade hasn't been put in the ground yet. But but we are in the planning stages, and over the next two or three years, um, we'll start to see commitment, financial commitment to those projects. And yet, still, people are saying, "Oh well, if hydrogen ever ever comes to power, if if we ever see hydrogen in the energy market, what's the point? It's not really there's no point to hydrogen. It's surely it's a shrinking business, not a growing business." I think if Kazakhstan um, can work out that it's it's going to bring it revenue, um, it should it you know it, it just seems. To be, if if it actually starts this project, I mean, I, there's always some uh, skepticism when uh, uh, a country which is not known for its uh, um, advanced industrialization uh, dives in. Uh, but um, if it actually starts, then then it, it must have done some work on where the hydrogen's going to go uh, in its own economy. I, I I can't really see that at this point. No, I think I think I think the China thing is actually quite important. I think China is trying to reduce its um, sort of strategic vulnerabilities for fuel imports. Uh, I think that right. will be a major thing because a lot of the Chinese infrastructure is going to be coming from uh, complexes uh, in its northwest. So then you just expand the pipeline or whatever other infrastructure you need um, to also extend out beyond your own borders directly into Kazakhstan. And, and yeah, Kazakhstan yeah. has a lot of its own money to fund with from from mining projects. And, and does uh, it have access? Does it have access, overland access, to a port um, into the sea? Because it, it, it could compete with places like Australia pushing um, hydrogen into Japan and South Korea if it did. So one detail that I came across while researching this was that I think the location is close to one of the main roads that goes all the way to China. Right. Um, so there you have it. Okay. Yeah, so it looks like it's China, yeah. Okay, because you why would you take it through China <laughs> to the to the sea uh, uh, to the South China Sea and then then ship it from there? You wouldn't. You if if you're in Kazakhstan, it's going to either China or or, or south to um, uh, India, Pakistan. You know, and, and um, yeah. So I, I think you're right. China is the destination. I think you could also okay. maybe go across the Caspian through Azerbaijan and Georgia, or maybe Azerbaijan to Turkey. Uh, through Armenia as well. I think that's possibly yeah, an option, but it's not the main one. Okay. I think, like, diplomatically speaking, they're just closer to China as well, though, aren't they? Uh, well, they're, so they're kind of... 
it's no, easier. Totally. So they, they have decent yes, relations with Erdogan yeah, and the Azerbaijanis. At some point, one of the things that's interesting about Turkey is Turkey is the centre of the whole uh, industrialised world, physically. It's right in the middle. It's like Europe to the left, Asia to the right. Uh, and it's not far from there. So all things are possible uh, in the fullness of time. But well, let's see how the hydrogen markets come into existence first and then develop. Okay. Um, with that, let's move on to our third story of the day. Um, uh, Andres came up with this idea that China is now saying publicly uh, it will have 100 gigawatts of energy storage by 2025. That's awfully soon. Um, it also tallies almost precisely with our forecast for China for 2025 um, for energy storage, something that uh, all the American forecasters have been saying America will dominate energy storage for some years to come, certainly past 2030. Uh, and suddenly here we have uh, China on target to overtake America by about 2024, if this promise is true. Where does it come from? And it is a bit it is a bit annoying because this is not Xi Jinping standing up and saying it. It's China's, I think China has 34 different provinces and uh, similar province level uh, designations. And I think it's only 20 of them have come up with the figure contributing to this 100 gigawatt. 20 of them have uh, announced pumped hydro storage targets and another 10 have done... Uh, no, 10 have done pumped hydro that comes to 43 gigawatts and 20 have done battery uh, grid storage targets that amount to uh, the rest of the 100 gigawatts. So you still I got see. maybe a double. Maybe the target could become double uh, unless all right. of the big provinces have already made their targets. Um, now right, think... so almost half of this is pumped hydro then. Mm. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so not, not battery energy storage. It's, it's a combination of the two. Um, yeah, and, we and almost felt that... that, that... I was going to say about the pumped hydro. So, and you, we think that it's a lot more than was previously thought. Is is that correct? Well, what happened was China used to have a target for 110 gigawatts of um, pumped hydro to be built in 2020. Uh, that was a target set in 2009, and come 2020, they'd only built 27 gigawatts. So, it's something that they sort of forgot about. It fell by the wayside. Now, if you go onto a Chinese news aggregator, I mean, I could go through um, just today's news, literally just today's news, and I'll try and uh, go through it really rapidly. I've got one story about a gigawatt hour scale vanadium flow battery project with a cost of uh, $400 per kilowatt hour. I've got another news story saying that 50 gigawatts of pumped hydro projects across 43 projects have had some kind of announcement so far, um, actually only this month. And it's 58 gigawatts has had various sorts of development announcements so far this year. Um, you know, I could just continue on in this vein. It's just absolutely... Uh, what you're saying is there are many announcements in China yeah. which which dwarf what the behaviour going on outside China. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I, I, I'm supposed to be the solar power writer. I'm not supposed to be the employee who occasionally becomes obsessed about China and just writes about pumped hydro or whatever. But, you know, every time... I look at the sorry, that's a bit of a silly thing to say. But every time I take a put in your job description. You're not obsessed (laughs) with China. Yeah, go on. But every time I happen to take a peek at this one particular Chinese website, I see another swathe of fourteen hundred megawatts of pumped hydro in this province. Fourteen hundred megawatts of pumped hydro in this province. 
What, what's uh, really interesting is that is, is that I see no more than four or five projects in America for not pumped hydro but hydro, and um, I've seen all of them. I've talked to a couple of them, and they all expect the permitting process to take a minimum of ten years. And here you have China coming up with whole new rafts of hydro, and they're expecting the completion to be in five years. So there is no permitting problem here. Um, this is this is another one of the great benefits of a centrally controlled um, society uh, economy. That that all right, you may at the, it may be at the cost of personal freedoms, but wow, you can get a lot done if if you're all in a, you know, aligned and all chasing the same objectives. And if you look on the map, um, you, you've got the Tibetan Plateau flowing down to the sea around Shanghai and all the provinces in between on, on sort of relative flatlands. Well, actually, they've got hills. They've got lakes everywhere. Um, it's I think I'm not the pumped hydro geological expert, but I think it's very suitable. And it won't yeah, well, be... Well, the thing specific. about pumped hydro, it, it, you have to remember, it's not hydro. So you, you have a closed loop system where effectively you take the water, whether whichever supply you get it from, wherever you get it from, you take it once and then you pump it up and down the hill. So you don't actually mix it in with the water supply uh, and you segregate that water. You might have a, a top up for evaporation every now and then, but fundamentally that's that's separate from the water supply. And that way you're not, you're setting new, uh, a, a new, new uh, pipes that the water goes through so you're not really killing fish off or spawning grounds or uh, or drowning uh, valleys which have people living in them you're not doing what hydro did your, your pumped hydro is very different uh, and, and you it's the same water up and down the hill I can remember uh, I was going four or five years ago I came across an Indian uh, guy who worked out how to pump salt water up and down a cliff um, using plastic um, components only. And he said this was going to be a big thing very soon. Uh, it disappeared without trace. It's four years ago. I haven't heard from it since. But th there are so many ways of using water. Um, and it does seem that we have been a bit remiss because we're so depressed about the state of hydro in the Western world that, that we should be saying pumped hydro is the way out. Come on, guys, let's invest more in it. But there is no evidence that America or Europe has any increase or any likelihood of increase in the near future. Sorry, what you, were you saying, Connor? I was going to say that this response into pumped hydro, is this an incredibly recent thing? Because there was issues in July, early August, with all the droughts that ruined like, factories and that sort of stuff. So is this just the China just effectively flexing their mobility and saying, we don't want this to happen again. So rather than doing more hydro, we're going to put it to pumped hydro and we're going to fix this. Well, it's, over the last 20 it years, is. it's built 22,000 dams. It's not messing about. Mm -hmm. it, you know, using more concrete than uh, the Industrial Revolution every week. Um, so it, it, so it isn't obviously... that recent from just September and the, the shortage then. So, yeah. Mm. Right, so so the the problem you do get with the with um, using natural water supplies is that they do tend that drought affects them, and that normally that water has to be released at some point. You can't hang on to it forever and store it forever for electricity purposes because you need it to grow food. 
So th th there's always a coordinated supply. Um, some of those rivers start in China and flow into Vietnam, and, and the Mekong Delta and half of Vietnam has lost water and can't build dams as a source because China's um, slowed all the water supplies down. And at the same time, the Tibetan uh, uh, ranges are starting to um, uh, produce less uh, less water. Yeah, they're, 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 it, it melts. Uh, the rain falls either as uh, as as warm snow or or as, as rain, uh, and then and then it flows through the land in a period of weeks and it's gone. And then you have periods of drought, and that's that's definitely going to happen increasingly. So uh, as any sensible society can say, well, well, let's let's just segregate the water that we're using for power away from irrigation. Let's, start, let's segregate it away from um, pe people's drinking water and let's, um, and let's just keep it in one place in a closed-loop system. That's, that's an, a natural process. It should, in, in other countries, lead to less permitting problems, but it hasn't. You know, that's, so China's doing this, right? It's, China's doing a, a lot of everything. And you can't find, all right, coal is probably the dominant uh, force at the moment, but you can't find one that's got an advantage over the others. You know, everyone who says, I want to build something that's going to give you electricity, they get permission straight away. What, what we're not seeing in other countries is a resurgence of pumped hydro. We should be. In fact, the hydro, uh, we're going to write something up next week uh, that only came in yesterday, um, where, where they're going to be talking about hydro at COP27. And the uh, IHA, the International Hydropower Association, is talking about um, having to double the output of hydro globally by, um, I, I'm trying to remember the date, um, 2030, 20, 2050. So um, there's going to, you know, but, but the same reaction you get everywhere. We've already have a, had our laws. We've already seen how bad building hydro is. So we're not going to make the distinction between that and pumped hydro, and we're just not going to uh, relax our permitting processes. And uh, because it's politically non-viable, people that relax permitting processes get voted out of office. Uh, and uh, it's the same for wind. You know, we, classic Germany, UK, and, and, in, and starting to happen in bits of America, people's, people block wind projects because they, uh, they don't want them in their backyard. Um, so permitting is a massive question at COP27. How important is it to, um, to have a big industry in China that can then have the supply chain and the expertise ready to go for other countries around the world for something like pumped hydro? Or is it simple enough that we don't need China for it? I think you always need a, a coordinated um, ability to finance projects uh, to, to um, complete them and also the intellectual property and also the manufacturing and they've got all of that but yeah I mean for someone to go into Ethiopia and say uh, we want to turn half your you know you've got mountains we, we want to turn half of your hydro into pumped hydro or we want to add to your hydro and and uh, make you less reliant on fossil fuels um, yeah, and Africa is a, is a great example um, the, the who they're going to choose? The, if the Chinese bank funds it initially, um, and the or the World Bank funds it, or uh, another international aid bank funds it, they're going to go with the one that funds it. They don't really care where the expertise comes from.
Uh, that's we should see a lot more of that. I mean, that 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 would be a lot of relief if everybody said, you know what, in Africa, everywhere, we, we're not going to put in gas plants. We're not going to um, drain all of the oil from these um, uh, countries. We're not going to uh, keep the coal mines open no matter what. We're just going to maximise hydro and renewables where they're suitable across all of Africa. And we can have a fight between America funding it, China funding it, and Europe funding it. And everyone can win a bit of, bit of the business. That would be a relief because, it, you know, we've got uh, uh, how many people in Africa? You know, are we getting close to a billion? And suddenly, um, if those nations industrialise, they industrialise around the wrong power technologies, um, everything that happens everywhere else is irrelevant. So, yeah, I mean, that's true in uh, parts of in Africa. It's It's been true of South America for a long time, um, but but there's there, there's less activity there. And there will be parts of Asia which um, which which can use um, and, and that which can use use pumped hydro. Um, but I don't I, I mean, we don't come across it. You know, how many projects do you read about it? It's, it's just in China. It's just where the government is different, just where the government can boss the people around. Where personal freedoms are curtailed somewhat, that, that you have this um, uh, directive from the top, we lead, uh, do as you're told. Uh, and only in that environment is permitting, um, uh, not, are people not terrified of hydro. And it's also because China has the, the scale and it's really fostering uh, technologies just because it seems to want to try absolutely everything. Like there's now a sodium iron battery project on the grid not very large but they built it because they wanted to try it out sodium mine has sodium mine been built in the west at all i don't think it has yeah, sodium mine is um is one of is the main all? uh we, we we put we did an article of an american company last week or the week before yeah can I read the issue <laughs> <laughs> well I'll, I'll restate my thought and it's it's um it's not just pumped hydro it's other things like uh Molten salt, which um, CSP, which gets built in Chile and a few other places. It's um, the the non-CSP molten salt, which you don't want me talking about anymore. But it's it's being pursued by China. It's the vanadium flow. They do seem to be sustaining various technologies, which sort of get ignored in really more capitalist places. You could yeah, say. right. So are you saying that, that that China is somehow salvaging these technologies and and they may become superior? Or are you saying they're just, or they're stuck on these technologies long after other people have rejected them? Um, you, you know, so so um, sodium, uh, a sodium flow battery, uh, we talked about on the 26th of October from Enlightened Innovations. So, and that's certainly not Chinese. Uh, Enlightened Innovations uh, is in America. So um, that that's... That's that's certainly being pursued. Vanadium flow is being pursued everywhere, but not with much success. And that is down to the economics. Um, the economics might be different in China because they have very large large percentage of global vanadium deposits in China. But again, vanadium um, isn't that rare, uh, and it's well established because it's used in tool making. Um, so there there will be mines everywhere. I think 30 or 40% of it is in China. So they might have a financial edge there. But really, I think um, it's less likely that these things are going to come out of China and dominate the world. 
I think I think only where we've all agreed on the technology. Um, like it's the same in solar. You know, you, you talk about solar, you talk about uh, bifacial, then you talk about heterojunction, you talk about perovskite. Well, everyone's chasing all of those at different speeds all over the world. So those are all going to have an impact. Uh, will vanadium flow have an impact? There's probably six people in our audience thinking they will, and most people say, no, nah, it's gone. Uh, same with, will CSP have an impact? Again, most people uh, think think it's gone. Now, I, I, you know, it's all down to economics. You know, we do know that the energy market is least cost option. The trouble is the least cost keeps changing. Um, in um, The, the uh, least cost keeps changing because suddenly there are raw material um, issues um, um, and speaking the of prices which, go up. Speaking of which, you know what finally came down? The polysilicon price. <laughs> I want to make sure I mentioned it. You've been forecasting it for so long now. It had to be true. It's like a broken clock. It's right twice a day. Um, you're, um... <laughs> That's very unfair. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but you, did, you actually, when did you say the price would be back to normal? Um, not in 2022. Back to normal. You, yeah, you said, well, you said more like the end of 2023. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it would be halfway back to normal by then. Yeah, so so you're, you know, you, it's tr it's the same on um, on the price of gas. The world's still panicking about the price of gas, and everyone's used it as a trigger for inflation and price gouging in every every uh, marketplace. But the price of gas is probably going to hit get back to where it started before the Russian war by the end of 2024. This is a two-year phenomenon. Phenomenon. But, but I looked at the German matter. electricity spot price, which is, of course, large, significantly determined by gas, and it's back to July 2021 right now. It was up at 700 euros per megawatt hour two months ago. Now it's only 100 or 150 or something. I think that, it, what, that Europe has done such a good job of uh, getting rid of Russian gas out of their supply lines. If they put the same energy into solving the climate crisis, wow. Over in minutes. I think it's a lot easier to change it when one of them is threatening immediate nuclear annihilation and is starting a land war on your continent, opposed to something you can't see. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The people making the decisions obviously don't understand the immediacy of the problem. Uh, okay, um, you know that 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 is conceded, but um, that's a broken record. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it has been amazing what, um, and in fact, there's a, 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 a professor I follow, Dieter Helm, who put out a podcast um, a couple of days ago saying that everybody is, is just assuming that the price of natural gas will stay high for 10 years. He said, what happens if it comes down again? And then he started making a case to, to say that it might come down again, which is strangely parallel to the paper that um, Bogdan put out, saying, predicting that by the end of 2024, it'd be back where it started. And that's purely because all we did is add up all the places that are going to uh, either supply extra gas or supply alternative gas supply or provide electricity instead of gas. And when you added all that up, the gas, uh, the pressure on um, the gas markets, it does evaporate in a couple of years. It does take a little while to to uh, come through the system but um it, it, you know it'll be too late for inflation 
because inflation will be has been unleashed. It's once it's out of the bag, everyone's raising their prices to um, just to. The, uh, I was appalled at something on television the other day where um, some woman is bemoaning the fact that she can't afford to have the gas fire on and can't afford to eat, and then said the rent's gone up. I go, well, oh, so well, the landlords have just decided um, that. Yeah, well, everyone's raising their prices. It's time for us to raise our prices. That's how inflation happens. So inflation won't be uncontrolled when the gas price falls. The gas price will fall. Okay, Simon, uh, have you got any little snippet for us that either baffled you or impressed you from the uh, from the issue? Well, yeah, it was a, a very good addition. Lots of. Uh, of deals going on in the energy world and but one of them in uh, uh, it struck me because it's we're on the eve of cop 27 uh, the climate summit and uh, our minds are being drawn to carbon emissions and it was about the european parliament and council has tabled an official agreement to end the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles ice vehicles by 2035 and we, we already um, know this, but and I was thinking about the supply chain because we've been writing about the uh, new energy supply chain in in recent weeks. So, um, to, what, what's what's your reaction to, um, uh, to to this news? No new ice vehicles by twenty thirty five. Do you think that is more of a spur for for new you know gigafactories, battery factories, and so on? Um, I, I think I think it's a real slap in the face for people like the CEO of uh, of Exxon Mobil, who's been saying, going around publicly saying, the world runs on oil. It'll run on oil in ten years. It'll run on oil in thirty years. You know, don't believe what you what you read. And um, he's assuming that the European Parliament would see sense and not push this legislation through. Too late. It's gone. He's assuming that China mm. won't. China's made the same statement, but it hasn't really uh, legislated yet. And, and, and he's wrong about that as well. I mean, the, the, the more certainty there is around the end of ICE cars, the more certainty among investors that the end of oil is coming. Um, and, and it doesn't take, you know, people in the investment markets can do modelling. They can do crude financial models on the back of a, of, of a cigarette packet. Um, and it's obvious that the oil industry doesn't look very healthy after 2030 and doesn't reach 2035. With legislation like this from the yeah, European yeah, Union? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's that much more certain now. It's now a law. Well, it's a directive. And then, and then, and then next thing, it becomes a law in each country. Um, and some of those uh, countries have already passed their laws. Um, people don't understand the way the European Union works is the European Commission says you have to create a law that says this and then the European Parliament endorses that decision and then you've got four years to create a law that says that and then then once everyone, all 27 have got the, the law in place you can't it's impossible to, to unravel it you can't go back on it can't be done so suddenly you know anyone who still thinks oil is going to be a force after 2030 is really fooling themselves we had a query from the client today, what's going to be the future price of oil? And we said $35 <laughs> by, by, by about 2030. You know, it's, uh, uh, and therefore, 
not taken out of the ground much longer because uh, it won't be economic. I mean, nobody can imagine that. The numbers don't lie. Uh, and, and, and you know, bless the European part of actually having, you know, the debate and then and, and closing the deal. Mm. Okay, so as Simon said, there are lots of uh, talking points in the issue. Uh, the issue is free. You go to www.rethinkresearch.biz. Um, you click on energy and you go to weekly analysis and that's free. It's free and all of the points made in there uh, are educated by what we learn as we build our forecasts. If you click forecasts and data, that's the paid segment of our service. That's how we make our money. Um, we'd like to invite you to all become customers. Uh, and if you have a query about this, email simon at rethinkresearch.biz and I'm sure he can um, talk you through it. Um, for now, that's going to be the end of this podcast. Um, been very wide ranging um, and we'll see you again next week.